All right. How is everyone? Happy Friday. I am Ryan Catherwood, and that is Chris Marshall. Thanks for hey, tuning everybody. in. You are watching or listening to Alumless, a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production. On the show, we discuss alumni and donor engagement strategies and other trends in university advancement. Thanks to our listeners for making Alumless part of your work routine or your pleasure routine. Uh, today, we are not broadcasting live. Uh, we try to be, but sometimes schedules just don't quite allow for it. But we are incredibly excited to bring our special guest today, Matthew Lambert, uh, on the screen just momentarily. Uh, we often get a good string of comments going in the LinkedIn. And actually, on this particular broadcast, perhaps Matthew and Chris and I, since we're not live, we can actually be participants in the comments in real time. Uh, so look out for that uh, when we're airing. Be sure to ask questions, uh, and we can talk in real time in the comments section of LinkedIn. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast version of Alumnus because you won't want to miss the bonus segment with today's guest, uh, Matthew Lambert. All right, Chris, how's it going? Good to see you. Oh, good. Good to see you again. It's been a whole two days. It's been a whole two days. You know, we recorded live on Friday, and here we are on Monday, getting ahead of the game, recording our next session, which I actually like. You know, we get to go ahead and create it and produce it and publish it and then just watch the magic of the interwebs happen uh, 1130 on the 11th. My favorite part of that statement is that you say we, and by we, you mean you do all that stuff. So <laughs> you're the magic behind it. <laughs> Well, I've recorded a couple of podcasts in my day. In fact, Matthew was the first person I interviewed for my personal podcast some years ago, Advancement Legends, went to his office in Williamsburg and um, was always grateful that he was my first ever guest in my podcasting cool. journey. So that was pretty cool. Followed closely by Sue Cunningham. And we've we've re we've reached out to her office a few times, but we, we're trying to pin we'll her get down. Her. We'll, get her. we'll get her at some point. But, um, well, uh, we've actually got uh, a holiday today, Chris. Today is Halloween. You're not wearing your orange, near am I. But we do have orange in the color scheme for CMAC. Yeah, we do. We What's do. going on with uh, the Marshall household for Halloween? Huge holiday. And our and 9 and 12-year-old little ones at home, the, the 20 and 25-year-old aren't as interested, but the little ones are. In our area, we have... Uh, you can go trick-or-treat on the Friday night of Halloween in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You can go trick-or-treat tonight in Hellertown, Bethlehem area where we live. But there's also dates over the weekend. So if you really wanted to, you could trick-or-treat four nights in our immediate community. So we're going to just go with tonight, though. <laughs> That's pretty intense. Now, do you, what is your favorite candy? Wow. Uh, any. <laughs> it's probably yeah. the answer, unfortunately. I have a tough time laying off the Halloween candy, I oh, have to man. admit. like it's It's always good when it's gone. I'm I keep threatening to throw it away. Snickers, Milky Way, you know, that kind of genre. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were together last week in Buffalo. I think we mentioned that on the last show. We were doing some strategic planning work with uh, Thomas MacArthur and the team at the University of Buffalo, which was great. I, I came along with you. That was my first foray into a strategic planning project. And I got a chance to observe how you think about things and, and, and watch you in action. You know, maybe you could sort of share with the audience a little bit more about sort of strategic planning, that sort of initial session that we do and, and the way that you think about strategic planning. What did you want me to sort of witness as uh, you were going through that? Yeah, I, I think it's in the first meeting, it's it's one part sort of standard structure facilitation of a there's an architecture that I use to sort of take clients through the process. That's 
stays the same, the architecture part of it. But what, so I wanted you to see that and sort of frame that up for you. But, but what I hope you noticed, and you'll see in meetings too, we do three meetings out of the gate on this and those other half of this meeting. And then the other two meetings are all about the client and they're all about UB. In fact, the, the, the content that's created, the way in which they get there, the, the process they arrive to it, while there's a structure that I put in place, it's all 100% them. At this point, they're really digging in to do the work. The other thing that I hope you notice is that I um, is that I think it's important that we just take time out and be strategic because we're so busy with the day-to-day -day work that we do all the time that we don't ever have time to think about what it should look like three to five years from now. And, and even in our meeting, if you recall last week, Ryan, there were people who canceled at the last minute because they were too busy with stuff they had on their plate, which I think is so ironic in the context of strategic planning. Yeah, right. I mean, how can we, we had a good crowd? Though. We had about 20 people there and got a lot of good work done and it's, it's on its way. So that's the good part. It was a great group. It was a beautiful day in Buffalo. I thoroughly enjoyed going through that. And it's just uh, sort of in strategy and planning is really important. And as we talk, bring Matthew out here in just a second, you know, the, we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, career services as part of university advancement. And, um, you know, that's, it's a, a sort of a mini trend, I think, in our space. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of strategic thinking that goes into making such an organizational change, right? And, and probably take, and we'll ask Matthew about it, probably take years of consideration, of thoughtful yep. deliberation internally to make such a, a, you know, sort of an important decision around an organizational alignment. Um, but, um, you know, why do you think that is that, you know, more and more schools are thinking about the importance of careers, internships, experiential learning, mentoring programs in the context of this career, the career space underneath advancement? And in fact, I my answer would be the same whether it's under advancement or not. I think that's, we'll debate that with Matthew in a moment, but I think higher education has been under pressure to you know, be accountable for the cost of higher education, frankly, and show outcomes. And uh, one of those is if I'm a parent, is my kid on their way getting going into grad school or getting that job or whatever it is they're going to do next? So having something where we can meet the expectations of parents and students um, to show the, the, the value proposition and why higher education, because there's plenty of jobs you could not go to college for, trade schools and others that are certainly, you know, uh, more than a living wage and you can do quite well for yourself and, and have a, a great life without higher ed. But the traditional path that any of us who are on a higher education podcast are thinking about is, is that past. And why, why do we do it? Why do we spend that money? In some cases, a lot of money, you know, quarter million dollars in some places for a four year education or more in some cases. So, yeah. Well, let's hear Matthew's thought on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and uh, bring out our special guest for today. Hello, Matthew Lambert. It is great to have you on Alumnus. How's it going? Hey, guys. Great to see you both wearing your William Mary Green today. <laughs> I got my pen in up, too. Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, absolutely. This weekend is actually the University of Richmond, my alma mater's homecoming. So I'm uh, I'm wearing all blue and red this week in one fashion or another. We'll, we'll forgive you for that, Ryan. I had forgotten about the Advancement Legends podcast, and I, I had forgotten you – you named me the all-time legend, I, re I recall. Is that right? Uh, of I all the legends? So. I think we were the legend of the legends. In fact, I think your episode may have been the most listened to. 
Oh, come on. Uh, is that because you forwarded it to all your, all your staff and you, and you made them listen to it or what? <laughs> we had, we had everyone sit in one big room with their laptops. It was, it was a professional development day. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, uh, well, it was great to speak with you then. It's always great to connect with you. And I'm so glad that you could be on the show this week. Um, you know, careers are one of the four strategic priorities identified in the recently published Vision 2026 strategic plan at William & Mary. How is President Catherine Rowe thinking about the importance of careers? And, and why is this such an important thing and that rises to the strategic plan level? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Chris touched on some of this, but... Um, if you look back historically at universities and particularly elite universities, I think we took very much the opinion that our job was to provide an opportunity for students to engage in the life of the mind and that anything beyond that smacked of uh, too much professionalization or trade school uh, focus. And I think the reality in the environment we're in today, economically, politically, socially, we're in an environment where students and their families at every level of higher education are thinking about outcomes. And so what, what we try to think about at William Mary is what's the return on investment for that William Mary degree? And is that ROI growing over time? Are we providing a meaningful opportunity while you're a student to engage in career oriented opportunities? And are we helping you uh, with that first job, with that third job, that fifth job and that seventh job? Um, so I, I think we've tried to move away from that either or mentality of it's either the life of the mind or it's a meaningful career toward the both and we'll really try to, to provide that opportunity for people to to think about how am I going to grow as a professional? How am I going to grow as someone who can explore a variety of career uh, pathways and find the one uh, that's right for me? Yeah. I think it's really exciting as, as someone who led a merged alumni and career team. I was I always get excited inside when I see another university taking that um, particular philosophy and moving it forward. But I know there's a lot of deliberation that goes into that, right? Um, sometimes years as, of thoughtful conversations and getting buy-in. To the degree that you can share, Matthew, could you talk about some of the conversations that were had at the sort of higher levels around this particular merger and some of the considerations that were taking place? Yeah, I, I would say President Rowe, uh, who came in uh, 2018, we, we began talking immediately about this. She was trying to think about how do we scale the very successful efforts that our uh, career team had made over the years. And that, that comes in a variety of forms. I mean, one of the ways that we had proven success in our campaign was in mobilizing our community of alumni to focus on annual participation, something that's a, a rarity today in higher ed and especially in public higher education. And we, we started talking about how could you mobilize that community of alumni to help in other ways. And when, when we look at the generations of alumni coming out of our institutions today, more and more of them want a more engaged, active experience than just getting a letter asking them to give or just getting called and asking them to give, right. finding ways that they can much more meaningfully uh, circle back with the institution. And so then what you have was pandemic, which Uber <laughs> accelerated everything we were doing at the time. And the president asked Kathleen Powell, who leads our career team, to lead a university-wide effort with all those individuals who had any aspect of career orientation 
in a much more holistic, unified, university-wide uh, fashion, which broke down the silos immediately. It was one of the one of the real benefits of the pandemic was the ability to to break down some of those silos. Right. But so the pandemic really just accelerated what was already underway, and uh, was an opportunity for us to to bridge some of that gap. We had already in our campaign dramatically grown the focus on networking opportunities. You know, I think all of us who work in advancement know that the desire amongst our alumni to have another cocktail party is dramatically diminishing. <laughs> and more of the interest is really around how can we find meaningful ways for people to connect? And that's larger around professional opportunities today. So it was it was a natural evolution coming out of the pandemic then for us to make this move. It's interesting yeah. that first conversation back in 2018, 19, when she arrives, right? And then you launched this officially. I mean, it became sort of public in FY23. So four years took to get to the point. That's so it's right. just not a overnight thing, right? No. There's a lot of consideration. That's right. Well, you have, as you mentioned, a, a top-notch career team there yeah. at William & Mary. Kathleen Powell leads the Career Development and Professional Engagement Office, and it's ranked number one for internships right now across the country. Uh, and that said, internships remain a huge focus at William & Mary, specifically called out in the strategic plan. Can you share how you're thinking about some of the lofty goals the university has around internships and how you're envisioning alumni will play a role? Sure. Uh, let me just say a word uh, about our team. We we have, um, as you mentioned, an exceptional leader, Kathleen Powell. Um, when the president made this move uh, to move the team into university advancement, we renamed the team Career Development and Professional Engagement, and we retitled Kathleen as the university's first chief career officer. So really wanted to have that, that mindset from the outset that she was thinking about careers university-wide. And one of the commitments that we're making through our strategic plan is that we want to guarantee a funded internship for every student. Now, what, what you find increasingly with internships is that students who are able to engage in an internship, particularly one that's paid during their time, exponentially increases the likelihood of them uh, getting that first job uh, very quickly after right. graduation. And when you look at our communities that have traditionally underrepresented uh, in uh, internships, our uh, minority, our women, our veterans, our first generation uh, students are underrepresented in internships. And so our, our desire is to make sure that every one of our undergraduates has an opportunity for that uh, funded internship. And so what we're, what we're seeking to do is to really be that career partner throughout the lifetime. So that from the time you come as a freshman until you finish your last uh, career uh, role, that we are your partner uh, throughout that process. And we want to open up and mobilize our network of more than 100,000 alumni to be involved in that process, to, to focus on externships, to focus on internships, focus on full-time employment, to focus on networking and career shifting uh, within that. So part of that is getting alumni to open up the doors to provide those opportunities uh, for our students. But it's also the opportunity for alumni to fund those internship opportunities. So giving a gift for a student who would otherwise be taking an unfunded internship to provide the funding that they don't have to decide between working at the restaurant in their hometown or getting a meaningful internship. We want to reduce those barriers so that every student has that same opportunity. Yeah, love it. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic initiative. I yeah, think more really schools cool. are seeing that opportunity to really make a, a great impact by specifically funding uh, unpaid internships and giving stipends, figuring out how to scale that across the university, I'm sure will be a, a great challenge to undertake. Um, but Chris, so do you think the alignment of career service underneath a university advancement is a good way to go for most schools, if not all of them? And when is it the right choice versus when is it maybe not the right fit? Yeah. You know my answer. To, I bet you Matthew knows my answer to this too. The classic consultant <laughs> it, response, it right? Depends. It depends. Right? <laughs> Matt, this is where we insert you giving me grief about consultant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're worth every penny, Chris. Everything. <laughs> I, I actually do think that that's the answer. I think there are a lot of factors, for, frankly. And I would start with the premise I think it's worth considering. There's a nice marriage there. The fact is that today, from a data standpoint, there the vast majority of them still reporting to the student affairs side of the house. You see it a little bit in the academic side and a little bit in this model here that we're talking about today. But I think there's many, many factors. Um, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to this. I do think that the number one things are the people in the well, there's there's history and tradition of the institution, and you're already building on this great, you know, foundation. But when you throw in the right president, the right vice president and Matthew. And in Kathleen, as a leader there, that formula becomes, there's no doubt in my mind, it's the right one. So when I say it depends, it actually does, in this scenario, the right leadership's in place, the right history and evolution. They got to the right evolutionary stage where it makes total sense to me that William & Mary's heading this route. I don't know that I'd apply that same formula or apply the same formula, but you may not get the same answers when you go through it with every institution. I suspect the larger you get, the harder this might be, but that's a hypothesis that I haven't tested fully because the models that I have seen uh, although there are some exceptions to this, UC San Diego being the biggest one, I know for sure. But the Longwoods, the Richmonds, the Bucknells and others of the world are on the smaller side in terms of alumni population. But in this model, 100,000 is not that small either. So it does so I give you a, a crappy consultant answer, right, is what I did there. So. It, was a, it was only a mildly crappy answer. Chris. I, feel, uh, I feel like it actually was. Don't give your, don't sell yourself short. All right. Um, no, I think that uh, it, it's it's a really good thing for any university to consider, particularly the ones who are really trying to take advantage of scarce resources to maximize efficiencies. Once you, I mean, I talked to Kathleen the other day, and she was just overjoyed to have access to all the alumni data. Right. I mean, there's some barriers that exist when uh, just some nuts and bolts barriers that right. exist. Yeah. When, um, but then I also found that, you know, one of the things I never really had control over was the faculty, the, the academy and, and ultimately really needed the academy to embrace the same narratives because they were the ones the students were always going to listen to. Right. So I think no matter where the alignment is, as long as the provost and the senior academic leadership are in on the on the plan and 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 make career services narratives part of the classroom experience in different types of ways, then it's going to be successful. If there's pushback, then I think it, it's tough no matter what the alignment is to be successful. Um that was just my own my personal. I know, it, you know, we we script out so people should know. We 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 script out our questions. And I was reading through to get prepared for today, and I said to myself, "At this question, we should ask Ryan this question because he's the one that has most experience in this." So I'm glad you weighed in there. Thank you. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was, you know, I love talking about this subject because it's a really interesting one, and and often had people calling to ask, "Hey, what's the you know benefits and drawbacks of this alignment?" 
Uh, but Matthew, what opportunities now exist now that hadn't before as a result of the career development and professional engagement office uh, being part of advancement? Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything uh, you and Chris said. I, I would, um, I would add in anyone who's worked in advancement knows that historically there's been also this slow and now rapid evolution where alumni associations that had been separate and completely independent are now for the most part completely integrated uh, yeah. with advancement organizations. And I, Chris, what's the number? It was something like fewer than 15. Yeah. I, I think we're down to less than 10 of legally and financially independent alumni associations. Most of them are interdependent in terms of financials. Many are still legally independent, right. but that's a different ballgame, but it's less than 10 that have full financial independence. And I think the, the, um, the gnashing of teeth that takes place before the integration of an alumni association with a development office to create an advancement organization. We did that eight years ago and we had lots of fears. And within a few months, people realized, look, there, there is no desire to turn everything into a fundraising operation. You know, for us to be successful ultimately with fundraising, we need students to get great jobs and to feel like their alma mater helped them get that great job. Yeah. It's like we need them to feel like there are opportunities for them to connect other than being asked to give. And so I, I think to answer your question, Ryan, we, we've been able to do some of the little itty bitty things that have a lot of impact, such as having a single CRM system that our career team is using and that our advancement team are using so that when someone is talking to a corporation, the left and right hands both know what's happening with that yeah. corporation. Or when an alum is meeting with uh, a student that the development officer working with that alum knows that they're doing more than just writing their checks. So little things like that. But we, we've also been able, uh, with the help of the president, to infuse significant resources into the operation. And I think that's what you find as part of an integrated advancement operation. We can think of this in a much bigger way where we're not just focusing inward on the students, but inward as well as outward. We need to think about supply and demand. Yeah. And I think we've been able to focus that very, very effectively to, to be able to add to the team. I, I think we also um, have been able to open the eyes of our colleagues working in career services to the larger strategy behind the programming that we do, the work that we do to advance the institution. And uh, we, we just last week um, closed a, a significant proposal that's going to result in a seven-figure gift to support internships on campus. That kind of integration is one of the early wins to show the success of this of this holistic integrated model. So I, I think you would find in talking to our career team that their opportunities have expanded, not contracted. I think you're right. You know, I, I had a chance to talk with another vice president of advancement at another Virginia state school not too long ago. He had a completely different take on it right? Career services was expensive. It was part of a 20-year long-term strategy for advancement, for fundraising. Really was not something that, you know, under his purview was likely going to result in sort of the immediate philanthropy of growth that... Um, so, Chris, have you got a, a vice president? Hey, Ryan, Ryan, just before you go on that, so I, I get laughed out of rooms very frequently also when I talk about alumni <laughs> participation rates. Interesting. And the, the same the same uh, thing can be said for alumni participation, where yeah. a lot of vice presidents, because their time frame is usually five to six years max, the, the investment required to do a really good job on participation 
is the same as the investment required to do a really good job on career services. So, yeah, I think in our profession, unfortunately, the time horizon for a lot of presidents and vice presidents is so short that they they can't afford to focus on these long term plays. And it it is true. I get it. But I would I would continue uh, taking those laughs for the long game that we're playing here. Well, it's also your alma mater, you know, Matthew, like you have the long term in mind. And do, do you think that that at all plays into the way that you feel about the strategy? Um, sure, just- sure. I mean, it, it absolutely does. I mean, I, but I, I was at Georgetown University for 11 years. I would make the exact same argument there that yeah. the investment is about a long term play, because the, the more we take a short term approach to this, the more donors, alumni and others look at look at us and say, well, you know, you're not really thinking about the long term here. You're really looking short term. Yeah. Yeah. My, my response to that is uh, if I had a VP say that and I had a chance to, I'd say to the president, you have the wrong VP because because my take on it is you need both. You absolutely have to have both the long and the short term. game. But but what, what what Matthew just described in his scenario with his recent seven figure gift, that's pretty recent. That's a short term play that, yeah. that has paid yeah. off. Right. So. I don't yeah. buy it's a long-term play. I think if it's right, if it's fully integrated correctly, the work that happens on the engagement side and on the career side, or even annual giving component to it, will pay off in this campaign, not just the campaign two, three from now. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of that. Alumni engagement is going to help the third. Yeah, it will, but it can help this one. Same with career. Same thing that Matthew just described. Well, I wonder if the thought is it can also you know, help a future one. So two years ago, William and Mary successfully completed a nine-year-long For the Bold campaign, and you all raised a billion dollars there. Of course, you're now imagining setting the stage, I suspect, for a future campaign. Uh, does this merger of alumni, of career services underneath advancements, do you think it's going to have an impact on that campaign? I guess you're saying... Um, are you saying that that's part of the strategy? Or are you thinking? Are you taking a broader view that engagement in this way is best for the university? Part whether or not it has an impact on the campaign. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a both and approach here. Where in our last campaign we had three goals. Um, one of those was to raise a billion dollars. One of those was to reach forty percent alumni participation, and one of those was to strengthen and deepen uh, the connections among and between our alumni. So we, we took a broader view of a campaign. What is a campaign? Not just a singular dollar goal, but really the broader, what, what should a campaign be? It should really be a galvanizing effect, a galvanizing uh, bringing together of your community around shared goals. And so when done well, you're getting more than just the 3% of donors who are giving you 90% of your dollars. Right, right. And, you know, so in, in the last campaign, we, we focused heavily on participation. And that was an expensive play that's about the long term. In, in this next campaign, uh, you know, Dan Frezza, who led that effort for us so successfully in our last campaign, we're trying to take the lessons from that to think about how do you apply that toward careers. So if we ask alumni, in addition to making a gift, to open a door for a student, to provide an opportunity for someone for employment, they are going to have a deeper, re- richer connection to their alma mater than if we just asked them to make a gift. And by the way, the generation of students coming out of college today are going to have on average seven to 11 careers, not jobs, not gigs, but (laughs) careers. So, So we as their alma mater have to be prepared to help them at every step along the way. And so we're thinking about this next campaign. Yes, it's one of the four 
strategic cornerstones that we've put out there. And it's going to be one of the large elements of our next campaign and how we think about fundraising and engagement uh, in the next campaign. And I love that, you know, we work with other clients occasionally, mostly with just William and Mary. <laughs> but we, when we have these conversations, it is so nice to be able to say and point to what you did in the three headed goal of your campaign. I can name six schools I'm working with right now that all have and have all looked at what William and Mary did and use that as a model for their campaign and thinking about it more holistically. So kudos. I just love that you, you were bold in that. So it's great. For the bold, right? I mean, for the bold. Absolutely. Uh, well, we have plenty more to cover in the second half of our um, episode. I want to show episode, you know, <laughs> conversation with Matthew Lambert, which we will have in our bonus section of the podcast. Uh, great conversation. Love this topic. Uh, we got some other topics that we'll discuss as well, including that more on that participation rate. But um, Chris, maybe you can tee up just uh, who we're going to be featuring uh, actually after Thanksgiving. We're taking the Thanksgiving holiday off. Yeah. So in, I think, four weeks, early December is our next one live. We'll be with, uh, I was going to say rising star, but she's a star. Trisha Stump from Indiana University is in her first gig as the leader. She's in her first year as the leader of the IU Alumni Association, but she spent many years before as the number two to a guy named JT Forbes, who we're going to have to get on the show one of these times, Ryan, because he's fantastic. One of the best leaders in the business. Mm -hmm. uh, he's moved into a Matthew like role at Indiana university where he's in charge of their foundation um, and has left his number two in charge of the now number one of the IU alumni Association, Trisha Stumpf. And she's just fantastic. Has great ideas about things has got a good head on her shoulders about metrics and measuring the work we do. So I think we'll have a fun and probably broad conversation with Trisha. Looking forward to that. Yep. They're doing some of the most unique stuff in the country, I think, in terms of putting a lot of the pieces together to be proactive around donor journeys and pipeline development yeah. and things yeah. of that nature. So it'd be great to, to talk with Trisha uh, after Thanksgiving. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the live show. We're Hopefully, we're the three of us, we've um, caught up with you in the comments section here on LinkedIn. Thanks for watching. And uh, we will be back again after Thanksgiving. Bye now. See ya. Bye-bye. Okay, we have returned with Matthew Lambert, episode 14 of Alumless. Thanks for making time for the podcast as part of your day. Uh, Matthew, I thought it would be good for folks who don't know that much about William & Mary. I think everyone's heard of William & Mary. It's definitely in a historic brand and school in the United States. Maybe you could sort of just share with folks who maybe not from Virginia like myself or from you know even the East Coast, a bit more about William and Mary and what makes the school such a unique one. Sure. Well, I, I know we don't have much time here. So to cover 330 years of history in the next 30 <laughs> minutes will be an abbreviated history. Not an easy uh, task. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. William and Mary is a special place. So uh, founded 1693, the only American university founded by Royal Charter from the king and queen. And I, I sometimes remind people that old in America, um, equals innovation. And people sometimes believe that that age really is about stagnation. I think if you are any kind of a corporation, foundation, institution, and you've been able to survive for 330 years in this country, you've had to continue. Exactly right. To, That's such a good to point. Innovate. 
yeah. and change. Um, you know, we we survived uh, being a front in both the American Revolution and the Civil War. And what what we are today is a little bit of a unique institution in as much as we're a public university, but we're small. And so many of our peers look more like private ivies, but they have more money than God. And so we're a little different in that <laughs> we are just really re-evolving uh, as an institution. So a couple of things that we're really proud of, um, you mentioned this earlier, but we're the number one university in the United States amongst public universities for internships. And we've had that uh, designation for the last two years. And we're the number one university amongst public universities uh, for alumni participation. And we've had that for the last seven years. So public university with very high affinity and very strong focus on both liberal arts and sciences, as well as uh, career engagement, um, which is a, a unique combination. So uh, yeah. it is a special place. It's also one of the most beautiful places on God's earth. So I highly encourage you to come visit us here whenever you can. It, it is. Uh, let me, Chris, one last quick follow up oh, on the yeah, internship yeah. question. I didn't. I didn't ask it in the on the front end of the episode about how, the calculation of that number one in internships. Is that the the first destination 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 survey results that propel that number one slot? I think folks listening be like, oh, how, how did that get that ranking? You, know? you, asking, you asking Chris? Uh, I was asking question, you actually. Really. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I was asking. I was asking. How does the number one ranking for internships come about? Do you know? I I don't know. This is this is a Princeton uh, review. Oh, Princeton ranking. review. Okay. Yeah, um, I think it is first destination, right? Okay. Um, but much like alumni participation, it has morphed and changed over time, and so each year the calculations are a little bit different. Got it. Got it. Sorry, I got us off track there. No, no worries. I want to ask Matthew about um, there. You know, three hundred and thirty years old. There have to be some traditions that have played out, maybe over centuries. But tell us about some of those. What What are some of the uh, traditions you look forward to each year, and your alumni base look forward to? Yeah, there there are a bunch of uh, traditions, and and I think the beauty of a college campus is every four years you do something more than once. It's a tradition, so it doesn't take too long right, to create right. uh, new traditions. I mean, we we have some beloved traditions over time. And then there's some that are newer. I mean, we we started six years ago, uh, something called the William Mary Weekend, uh, which is a, a partnership of our alumni association and the university, where we take the university on the road and you take the best of William Mary and the best of that community and you, and you bring it out in those uh, areas. Um, we started earlier this year, we had our first black alumni reunion. Uh, earlier this year, we had our second uh, women's weekend. So we've, we've had some new traditions created. One of, one of my favorites is uh, what we call opening convocation. So on the first day of classes, all of the new students and the faculty gather in the yard of the Sir Christopher Wren building, which is the oldest academic building in the country, 1695. Um, oldest continuously used academic building, still classes taught in there. And everyone gathers on one side of the Wren from the new class and the faculty. And on the other side are all of the upperclassmen. So we have a, a beautiful ceremony at night, and it concludes with the new students walking through the Wren building to uh, the band is playing and the students are going crazy. And it's a welcoming into the community. It's a formal welcoming into the community, which then bookends at graduation. They walk the opposite direction uh, out of the Wren building uh, mm. in the other direction. So it's it's a special time to make sure that they feel that one of our core values of belonging, that this is a place where They've come and they belong uh, here with us. 
I love that. I, I, we, we, my alma mater, Lehigh University, has a similar event. Um, it's it's the second night they're there. They arrive on a Friday, second night is Saturday night for orientation. And they have a um, first year student and alumni uh, welcome ceremony. It's basically an adoption. The, the class that's 50 years senior from the class of 2026, class of 1976, adopts them. Yeah. What's really interesting is that the class of 1976 was adopted by the class of 1926. And so on. So there's like this 200 year stretch between it. It's just a really cool. But the fact that you have Christopher Wren as a former architecture major, I can tell you, Christopher Wren's a big name in my world. Uh, that's that's right. the building that they're walking. Through. It's totally cool. What a, right. what a neat addition. But 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 there are upsides to having an event be a tradition. There are also downsides to events being in traditions. What's your take on that? And are there other traditions that you can point to that aren't event related that you think help? That, with that belonging and other pillars that you're trying to inf infuse? Yeah, I think I think for all of us, I mean, the, the last decade has been one of real evolution as we think about engagement. Right. You know, we we did, when I when I came to William Mary in 2013, I inherited, uh, you know, what was a great program, heavily focused on social engagement. And over the last decade, we've tried to evolve to a more robust mix of intellectual, cultural, professional and social mm. and looking at all four of those forms of engagement. And we, we talked a lot about professional and how we're really trying to amp that up among students and alumni. So pandemic forced all of us to dramatically accelerate uh, focus on engagement opportunities that were not event specific, that were not really around. We all meet at this time, at this place and this time right. on this right. and, and come together I think the generation of people that are graduating from college today in some ways have less appetite for that. Although we're finding that the numbers of young alums returning for homecoming and their reunions are off the charts. Yeah. You know, I think the, the, the notion of being um, uh, alone together uh, is coming true for us where people <laughs> really want to be, you know, back together with people because so much of their lives now yeah. is, yep. is out there and separate. But it's a struggle for universities. You know, we we 10 years ago, everyone thought we we're moving to this digital wave where we won't have to publish magazines and the hundreds of thousands of dollars is gone. Not so. You know, yeah. we, we have different generations that want different things. And so we still have a lot of alumni that want strong in-person connections. And then we've got a lot of alums that want micro opportunities for them to engage right. with others right. around affinity, identity, um, professional, you know, new and different ways of connecting with one another that aren't always about an event that we're having. You know, so, I, I would argue, um, Matthew, that the, the reason you're seeing high attendance at, uh, at homecoming and reunions for your younger classes is that you're doing a phenomenal job at seed planting, I call it. If they understand that while they're there, they're more likely to come back in their first years out. And, and that sort of sticks. That's so we're going to go off script here for a second. I'm going to ask you this one, Matthew. Traditions, especially around events, um, if we were to stop one, you're going to hear it no matter what you do, uh, no matter how impactful it's been more recently. And often these decisions get made because we're seeing a decline in something and it just doesn't make sense to keep doing it. And then we make the decision to stop it. Have you experienced that at William & Mary? And how do you manage that pushback? Or do you do that in advance before you get pushed back? Yeah, we we had one of those this year. Uh, we had uh, at our homecoming, we've had a parade for uh, decades, and it was beloved by um, older alums, students increasingly less interested in yep. it. 
and uh, not because we didn't want to have it, but due to staffing and and uh, other issues, the the alumni association decided not to do it this year, which was probably the right decision, but was uh, was met with less than excitement and enthusiasm <laughs> from uh, some of our alumni. Yeah. So we 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 adapted and pivoted and created something more like the Princeton P Raid, where we had a, a walking parade through campus. We still had the Grand Marshal in a golf cart. And so it was still quite fun and festive. And uh, we heard the message loud and clear that alumni want to get back to having a traditional parade uh, during homecoming. And so I think there, there are always those opportunities where you try to adapt and, and modify. And we, we can find new ways of doing these things. And we need to think through, you know, what some of our generations still love and cherish uh, about coming back together. Yeah, yeah. Never easy to uh, bring change on a college campus. <laughs> I just read an article yesterday at the University of Arizona. You could have taken out William and Mary from your last paragraph and then sort of they're dealing with the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Students don't want to do it. The alumni do. And they're trying to figure out a way to reconcile it. So from an alumni engagement standpoint, do we what is your thought, Matthew? And Chris, I'd love your thought as well on are these types of traditions good st- strategies for engaging new folks, bringing folks off the bench for the first time? Or do you think that they are better for engaging some of the school color bleeders, you know, the folks who are passionate about the school? Because we often deploy so much, so many resources towards these very elaborate traditions that are incredibly difficult to produce. Uh, and oftentimes, at least in my own experience, um, planning these types of events, we would see a lot of the same names on the attendance list each time. And not that that was a bad thing. It was just, it was some, somewhat clear to me that it didn't seem like it was a strategy for getting new folks involved. What, what do you, what do you both think more broadly? Matthew, you go. I'd love to hear. Yeah, I, I think, I think you can't assume everything you do is going to bring in new people because there are still alumni and friends that you need to engage in the traditional ways they want to be engaged. And so you can't necessarily assume everything you do is going to be about bringing in new people. It's great when you can, and it's great when you can make modifications, but there there are also the need to have some of the more traditional historic engagement opportunities that you have. I mean, for us, reunions still matter. You know, people who graduate in a particular year want to get together with their classmates because they, they had that strong affinity with their classmates. And We've tried to adapt and create new opportunities uh, for engagement. So it it is much like the the magazine and the digital strategy. It's not an either or. I think it's a both and approach. Yeah. I, I, Ryan, let me add 100 agree everything. Matthew. Let me add on this. Think about a small liberal arts college in the Northeast, 25,000 alumni that was all male until 1970 something and went co-ed. And they have a very steep tradition around class based reunion. Um, and as they get more recent in their student up to their current student population, they're the most diverse student body, one of the most diverse I've ever seen. And what they're finding from an inclusivity lens on it, that their more recent grads that are more diverse and co-ed, by the way, um, are not as into the tradition that they had that everyone else. So the all male white, you know, reunion kind of old guys coming together thing is real for them and it's not diverse. So they're saying, how do we engage our more recent graduates and, and our, in the future, our current students around it in a diverse way. And, and they're having a whole different discussion about it. And it comes back to Matthew's final point. It's not get rid of one to do another. It's both. You got to have the, the traditional one and keep that going from a stewardship standpoint. And there's a whole nother cultivation standpoint in the new model moving forward, where you're going to have a much more diverse set of people who are interested. 
So where does the rubber meet the road if your staffing and resources is the same? Yep. <laughs> it right? If you say, we can't stop this thing. In fact, we must keep making it better and more innovative each time. But yet we must continue to do things differently. Right? What are some of the things that that ends up, and maybe this is a rhetorical question and, and one that's somewhat unanswerable, I guess. But, um, you know, where does the rubber meet the road when it comes to making decisions around programs that to start and stop? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the eternal leadership question where you've got to decide what can you do and what not do. And so I think ultimately you're looking at the return on investment. And there too, you've got to look at short-term versus long-term. And uh, you don't want to turn off people who have been loyal, faithful donors for a long time. And you also don't want to, you don't want to do anything that turns away uh, your, your newer generations uh, of donors. But I, I, I think again, I mean, universities are awful at stopping things. We're great <laughs> at starting things. You know, we create lots of new opportunities, uh, but we rarely stop doing anything. And, you know, we, we had this notion, if you all have read, Jim Collins is good to great. You know, you're going to sell the mills. What are the mills you're going to sell? Each year, our leadership team would sit down and we would come up with one or two minuscule mills to sell. And we would have added five or six uh, new things. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think success begets success. And, and the more you do create new successful things, it, it should ideally be generating new revenues that are helping to reinforce those programs that you're creating. Yeah, well, you all are doing a great job with your alumni participation rate, right? Ranked as the top in the country, uh, which is an amazing statistic. Uh, how do you, for those schools that are out there, thinking, seeing donor participation rates decline, of which that that is most uh, in that category? What are you doing differently there at William and Mary, and and how do you sort of wrap your arms around this great achievement? Yeah, we we have an extraordinary team um, led by Dan Frezza who uh, have really helped us to create a broader focus. When I came back, I elevated the role of annual giving to be a direct report to me as vice president. And rather than calling it annual giving, we called it lifetime philanthropic engagement to really to really make clear that this was around how do you create something that is longer lasting than just the annual gift that you wanna bring in. I think yeah. all of us are guilty of putting out press releases announcing the seven and eight and nine figure gifts and really tooting the, the magnitude of these gifts. One of, one of the things we've done successfully is every time we do that, we pair it with statistics around donors who give $250 or less. <clears throat> and we mentioned the magnitude of those donors. And when you can do that again and again and again, you can begin to create some traction around every single donor's gift mattering. You know, we all say that, but you have to show evidence that every gift matters. And so the fact that we had participation as one of the three goals in the campaign helped us to get more donors to see they do care about this. They do count this. They do focus on this. It's not just about the billion dollars. It's also about how my gift contributed to that. So I think yeah. every institution can do that. Every institution can focus on the breadth of philanthropy and how that breadth when brought together adds up to a pretty big number and that impact can be felt. I, I always say that the, the average alum can't see themselves in a billion dollar goal, but they can see themselves in a participation goal or an engagement goal. Um, I think that's really important. That's right. Um, let's see, where do we I, I want to go to next? Brian, Brian, yeah. I'll, I'll also say uh, 
2013, Dan Frezza came to me with this notion of a, a giving day. And I was perhaps the most skeptical person <laughs> when he brought the idea forward. And <clears throat> that first year, we scraped by with uh, about 1,700 donors, and we raised a little bit more than $200,000. And uh, this year is our 10th year of doing this. This upcoming year is our 10th year. We we hit a high of around 14,000 donors. Wow. Which which is exceptional when you think we've only got a hundred thousand alumni. Yeah, yeah. And what what blew me away as this thing grew and became bigger was that on social media it was less about giving than it was about sharing a sense of community. You know, people coming out with these stories that they would share. I give back because I give back for I give back in in honor of. You know, those stories really created a sense of engagement that I never could have imagined a decade ago. And so I think we're getting to a, a, probably the the top of the hill on days of giving because everyone and everything has a day of giving now. But the more we do to make those opportunities around community, rather than just that you made a gift, the more successful I think we'll be as an industry. That's interesting. I, I think so. What do you think accounted for the growth that you saw in the give the giving days? Operate procedure, operation, outreach, coordination, any sort of things that you can point towards that in your as things be, really were ramping up um, to to sort of factor the most into that increase in participation. Yeah, I would say all of the above. We made it an institution wide focus. So. We were, we were engaging faculty, staff, students on campus. We were engaging alumni and friends off campus. Um, we had a year-round group of colleagues from across advancement who were coordinating and leading this. So it wasn't just our annual giving team focusing on this. It was really the breadth of our team. And I think there, too, you've got to have the commitment from the president and the vice president to make this an organizational priority. It, it can't just be a siloed thing that's like another mailing that's going out. It really has to be an organizational uh, priority. And when done well, that can result in pretty significant dollars as well as engagement. And, and coupling your previous response with the, the notion of community being the message, not dollars. Um, if you if you put all the right mechanics together that Ryan mentioned and you throw in that right messaging, it's no wonder that you grant, you've grown. Oh, the other thing, throw, throw back to two comments ago, um, it also has become a tradition. That's right. Um, right. It's part of the cult. People sort of expect it when they hear that right. it's coming, they're going to know. And that builds year after year. That's right. And your, your, your friends and alumni who bleed green and gold, you know, they, they do look forward to it as much as they look forward to homecoming and sure. charter day and the other celebrations that you have. Yep. Well, it's, it's definitely um, an interesting thing that you mentioned in terms of seeing at the top of the hill. All right. <laughs> so when it comes to, and I think a lot of schools, you know, have seen some success, but maybe some plateauing when it comes to results. Is that is that a bad thing? Do you keep doing it even if there's a plateauing or a or maybe starting to slip to the other side of the hill? Or at a certain point, do you have to be willing to pull the plug and reconceptualize what a giving campaign in, that could be? You know, a, a social giving campaign. Yeah, I think even if you plateau and are coming down the hill, if you're still getting five, seven, 10,000 donors to give a gift on a single day, that's massively more successful than anything you have done in your history. Right. You know, we we look yeah. back on, you know, December 31st, June 30th, right. you know, the days right. when you have the highest peaks, 
those pale in comparison to a day of giving. And I think we've trained donors now that, you know, they, they know Giving Tuesday is coming up in the fall and that we have our day of giving in the spring. And so people are looking for those, waiting for those. So even, even if you are seeing a decline, it's still dramatically higher than anything you had before. Yeah. Matthew, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to shift a little bit on the thinking here and we've talked about so many successes and you have, I point to you as if you want to look at a model, look at William & Mary. Many consultants would say the same, I think. And uh, you have such great programs, great people, and of course, great success in terms of the data we've been talking about, but there's got to be things that, you know, the old, what keeps you up at night question. What is it for you? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. One, um, if you go back to the early 20th century and you track philanthropy as a percentage of GDP in the United States, <clears throat> it was very consistent the entire way through. And that, that has remained true today. What has changed, however, is that younger generations are shifting away from those organizations that traditionally were supported faithfully. So historically, religion, right, right. And education were one and two. Everyone gave back to their faith organization. Everyone gave back to their alma mater. And the, the youngest generations, the millennials and the Gen Z uh, generations, they are equally philanthropic, but far less so to their <laughs> alma maters. You know, they're, they're giving to a thousand organizations. They can give $25 to a one-room schoolhouse in sub-Saharan Africa and they can know the books and pencils that were bought in that school. Whereas they ask us, what do my $25 do? And you say, well, I can't really tell you what your gift uh, did around here. So I think, I think as an industry in higher ed, we're, we're going to struggle to compete if we can't do a better job of showing impact at every level. I think we're pretty good at showing impact at larger gifts, but how do we show impact at a, at a lower level? Um, that's one. The other I would say, um, and this is, again, not just in our industry, but it's um, it's everywhere. The Great Resignation um, has been a real challenge. And I think, you know, for us trying to adapt from exclusively in person to a mode of hybrid where we give our um, our staff much more flexibility in the, the modes and, and shifts of how they're working. You know, I think we're adapting to that. But universities like ours are place-based institutions. You know, when you're when you're preaching the good news from campus, you've got to have a deep enough, a rich enough sense of the campus. You've got to spend some time there uh, really well. Last thing I would say, uh, we're we're in an environment today where both the left and the right are highly critical of higher education. You know, we we had historically been supported by politicians on both ends of the spectrum. And today, no matter what TV station you turn on or what newspaper you read, there's someone from the left and the right who is highly critical of the value and importance of higher education. Now, when you when you get them one-on-one, -on -one, they, they sing a very different tune, but right. the, the, the message that the average person hears is that college isn't worth it. College is too expensive. College is a waste. Colleges to this, colleges to that, where, you know, I think we we still, all of us know the deep value of a good college degree, a good college education. And we've got to do a better job of telling that story out there. I'm starting to hear more and more. I've heard everything you just said, I've been hearing, but increasingly I'm hearing a pushback against giving to higher education. 
Yeah. You know, they don't need our money. They have this big endowment. They don't, you know, that, that, that stuff has yeah. seemed, I've heard it for a long time, but I've seen feeling like I'm hearing it more. Is it the same for you or? Absolutely. I mean, there, there was a piece Malcolm Gladwell put out um, yes. <laughs> uh, recently, which was, you know, it's thought provoking and it's wrong. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, Can we get it's, Malcolm Gladwell and Matthew yeah. on the show, have a debate? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the idea of why can't universities just take these endowments? They've got these billion dollar endowments. Why can't they just take that money and direct it toward good? Well, because donors have dictated how they want those gifts used. And none of us get to willy-nilly change the uses of those uh, endowments. So, I mean, there, yep. there, there are a lot of just factual uh, mistakes out there that people make and they promulgate in a big way, much like we have elsewhere in our media culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, on the flip side, and to sort of wrap up this the show that we've had with you, thanks so much for your time, Matthew, is uh, we always try to end things on a bit of inspiration. Where do you find um, excitement, inspiration from others or different organizations? What What keeps you inspired to do your job? Yeah, I think anyone who works on a college campus is inspired by seeing 18 to 22 year olds year after year, day after day come forward. These are young people who are excited to do good in the world. These are young people who are excited to make an impact. Um, And I I think it is, it's a great place to be. It's a great time to be working on a college campus. I think it is, it is also the case that I think for all of us, look at that. That's, that's a number one New York times bestseller right there. I was just like, Chris is reaching for a prop back there. What's he doing? You know, <laughs> Matthew, plug your book. This is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, this is this was a um, this was a book um, that was uh, bringing together some of the leaders in our profession to write about some of the different aspects of uh, advancing higher education today. It was a lot of fun uh, to work with some of the really talented people, some of the legends, as Ryan uh, would uh, describe them out there. And so, I think those were a number of inspirational people uh, who came together. The book is called Advancing Higher Education, New Strategies for Fundraising, Philanthropy, and Engagement, edited by Michael Worth and Matthew Lambert. Uh, get it on Amazon or at your local bookstore. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It, Ryan, the last thing I would say is, um, in, in addition to young people on our campuses, I am blessed, and I know a lot of my colleagues at other institutions, to to see our colleagues who come together day after day to tackle another difficult problem, to make another step forward. You know, we really are changing lives, and there's very few professions where you can go to bed at night saying, look, I I did some good today, and I was helping a young person or helping a professor or helping uh, someone uh, on the staff. That's a great feeling to be able to say, You've done some good. You've tried to make the world a little bit better place. I, for one, have always been really grateful to have found myself in this profession. I find it uh, brings a lot of joy and um, it's meaningful and fun. And uh, I'm grateful to have spent time doing it. But uh, Matthew Lambert, thank you so much for being on Alumnus. Chris Marshall, great to see you again, sir. Thanks for thank you, Matthew. all of the uh, great conversation today. Thanks for listening to Alumless. We'll be back in your feed after Thanksgiving. I believe it is December the 9th with Tricia Stump from Indiana University Alumni Association. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye.